This episode is brought to you in part by June's Journey. Picture it, the glamour of the roaring 20s wrapped in a mystery that only you can solve. Dive into June Parker's captivating quest to uncover scandalous family secrets. With your keen eye for detail, find hidden clues and solve mind-boggling puzzles. It's all about observation, intrigue, and drama. But beware, each clue leads deeper into a thrilling storyline filled with danger and romance. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Your adventure awaits. This podcast is supported by FedEx. FedEx offers fast delivery, more visibility, simple returns, and weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. With FedEx, you get picture-proof of delivery, ensuring you always know where your package is. Returns are simple with packageless and paperless returns. Plus, FedEx Ground is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. So, what are you waiting for? See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. There's an old saying that I live by, a saying that has survived generation after generation in my family and provided me with a kind of guiding light, even in the darkest of times. That saying is, always say yes to a wedding. I took this advice to heart about a decade back when I was invited to a cousin's nuptials in Augusta, Georgia. We weren't too close, me and this cousin, but a wedding is a wedding. So when I got the invite, I did what I always do. I said, hell yeah. The reception was at Augusta's old medical college. But don't go thinking this was some sterile, chemical-smelling outpost. No, this was a cool old stucco building with ornate pillars that guarded shiny wood double doors drop-dead stunning, like something out of an old history book. Later in the night, after I'd had my fill of sirloin cutting up on the dance floor, I am quite the dancer, I went to take a break with the spectators. You know the ones I mean, the group that got seated at the faraway table, the group of folks who either can't dance or won't dance. I sat next to a won't, my Uncle Tommy, He had his ill-fitting tux unbuttoned and his arms crossed all tight. When I asked him what was up, he said, your cousin and her husband are dancing on a grave. The hair on the back of my neck rose up at that. It kept on rising as Uncle Tommy, over the sounds of you make me want to shout, told me that thousands of innocents had been shown injustice in this place. And it was all thanks to a man no one in these parts could bear to speak of. Still, Uncle Tommy assured me that he wasn't afraid of shit, so he'd be happy to name names. He was talking about the Resurrection Man. I hadn't been planning on hearing a story like this tonight, but my legs were tired and I had some digesting to do. So I leaned back and let Uncle Tommy do the talking. He prefaced his whole speech by telling me he hadn't known any of this until the late 1980s, when he was hired on the construction crew that was restoring this fine building. During the reno, they found, Uncle Tommy paused and shuddered. He'd get to what they found later. What I needed to know first was the history of this place, and it was a morbid one, so I'd better buckle up. 
About 200 years ago, when the venue had still been a medical school, its students were in sore need of cadavers to practice on. And, well, there weren't enough of those to go around. Only so many people die every year in this neck of the woods, so the school's powers that be had to look elsewhere. And by elsewhere, I mean the cemetery near the medical school grounds, Cedar Grove. Yeah, that's right. They decided the only way to get the bodies they needed was to rob graves. Except pulling corpses from the soil was gory, lurid work. It was illegal, too. And none of the lofty medical faculty wanted to get their hands dirty. So they went and bought themselves a fall man, a slave by the name of Grandison Harris. Grandison apparently stole thousands of corpses from Cedar Grove Cemetery. Unbeknownst to their living loved ones, those poor souls were dragged from their final resting spot and cut up in the name of science. And by the way, Cedar Grove is where the city's black community tended to be buried. No accident there, Uncle Tommy guessed. If white folks had to choose someone's grave to desecrate, it wouldn't be one of their own now, would it? Michael grabbed my arm then, earnest as all hell. He said the whole thing was worse than moral repugnancy, because disrupting the dead is dangerous. When a body is moved, defiled, their spirit gets corrupted, broken. It gets so shattered that they can't rest. That's why Uncle Tommy believed the legend of the resurrection man went deeper than what most people thought. It's why no one should be dancing in this place, because Grandison wasn't just moving bodies. He was raising the dead. You're listening to Run, Fool. I'm Rodney Barnes, and this is Episode 2, The Resurrection Man. Uncle Tommy leaned back in his chair. History lesson first, he said. The old medical college... The building we were sitting in was an esteemed medical school back in the 1830s, all the way up until 1900-something or other. That's when the medical school moved to a fancy new campus across town. This place was kind of forgotten about. It changed hands a few times, fell into disrepair. You know how it goes with old buildings. But in the late 1980s, the college realized, all crap. We've got too many best and brightest, and we're running out of space. Not coincidentally, this was about the time when Uncle Tommy got hired on for construction detail, because the college decided to restore the old medical building to its 19th century glory, to use as a kind of annex. It was outside this annex on the first day of classes in 1989 that a medical hopeful named Gregory was staring at a dead body. Its sinewy muscles were exposed, revealing thighs full of colorful strips of flesh. Its face stared vacantly towards the sky. Luckily for the passerby of Augusta, this corpse was just a photograph, nestled in the pages of the absolutely massive textbook that Greg was focused on. That is, until a sudden scream ripped him away from his studies. A look-up revealed a gaggle of students ascending the steps of the old medical building. One of them let out another shriek of laughter as they disappeared between the entrance's massive pillars. Greg checked his watch. Just about 6 p.m. Class was starting soon, and he wasn't the kind of guy who was late. Not ever. And definitely not on the first day of the rest of his life. 
This edge of anxiety came from a good place. It really did, because Greg was kind of in a tough spot. He'd been born and raised in Augusta, a local kid if there ever was one. Hell, he even had family members buried in Cedar Grove back in the day, the cemetery just down the street from where he sat. But the thing was, his family had been struggling financially for generations, and Greg was about to step in as the ringer. He'd gotten a scholarship to study medicine, which meant he was going to be the first doctor in the family and break whatever cycle of generational poverty they had been caught up in. No matter what it took, he wasn't going to fuck it up. But during his first anatomy class in the old med building, boy, he kind of fucked it up. First of all, the large class was jammed into an inexplicably tiny room. So he was elbow to elbow with his classmates. He could barely even take notes. His sweaty hand couldn't really grip his damn pen, and his arm kept hitting the person next to him. It was during his frantic attempt to write down something that he heard two words that made his stomach flip. His name? Gregory Moore. The professor was looking at him, attendance list in hand, waiting. But Greg hadn't heard the question. He could only stare back at the professor, mouth slack, heart hammering, till another student cut in to answer with confidence. The professor liked that. Glad some of you are with us, he said. Ouch. The class went on like that, with students raising their hands left and right before Greg could come up with anything that might help recover his dignity. Then it was over. He sat there as students filed out, and man, oh man, it had to have been hard for that guy not to wallow in self-pity. The first day of the rest of his life had been a mess. That's why Greg couldn't fathom going back to his dorm room just to sit in the disappointment of it all. Instead, after everyone left, he took a walk through the old medical building to clear his head. It was dusty and dark, and kind of smelled like a mix between debris and cleaning solution. The construction was clearly still in earnest progress. Old, disintegrating walls had holes in them. Some others were covered in plastic. He eventually came upon a huge room with shiny wood floors and dusty tarps covering old pillars dome cut into the ceiling at the center, revealing the floor right above. Greg thought about all the students and doctors that must have walked through here back in the building's glory days. And let's be honest, there's something transformative about being in a space you revere. It compels you to do things you wouldn't normally. And that might be why Greg found himself on his knees, praying. Not to any god or saint that we might know. No, he was praying to the gods of medical science. Hands clasped, Greg asked for guidance, assuring whoever could hear his call that he would do anything to succeed here, to make his family proud of him. But he just got a whole lot of silence in return. That is, until an echo came from the hallway outside. Footsteps. Greg whipped around to see a tall figure wearing scrubs rush by the room's open door. He got a little nervous then, because he couldn't be in there. Classes were over. No one was around. It'd really be the cherry on top of a shit Sunday if he got arrested for trespassing or something. In the midst of these worried thoughts, Greg realized he wasn't alone. That tall figure was back, standing in the doorway, watching from the darkness. A moment passed, then another. And because Greg had been raised to be polite, even when he was unbearably nervous, he said the only thing he could think of Hello? The figure spoke, and a gravely tenor he asked if Greg was done learning for the night. Or would he like an after-hours lesson? 
and then he vanished down the hallway. And well, Greg followed this guy, and I'll tell you why. He had just been humiliated his first day of med school. He was thinking all kinds of self-deprecating bullshit. Things like, if the year keeps going like this, maybe he'd never be a renowned doctor. Maybe he wasn't cut out for any of this. Maybe he'd lose his scholarship. A little after hours lesson was, forgive me, just what the doctor ordered. So Greg hurried after the scrubs man. The moonlight streaming through the building's windows lit his way until he turned a corner and stepped into utter darkness, the kind that makes you wonder what's lurking inside it, the kind you don't want to mess with. Greg started to go back the way he came, but out of the corner of his eye, he saw a light come on way down the corridor. From beneath a closed door, he approached and gave it a knock. No answer. Another. Nothing. So he slowly pushed it open. The room he stepped into was small. A dim, flickering bulb lit the space, revealing a table with a white cloth pushed against the far wall, over which a series of medical tools were spread. In the center of the room, the scrubs man was bending over a metal slab. Greg could see him a little better now. He was immensely tall, maybe middle age. And when this guy turned to Greg, it also became clear what lay on the slab, a dead man. The skin on his chest was flayed open with metal clamps. The taut edges were punctured and raw from where the clamps dug in. But this body's bloated husk was so full of preservatives that it didn't bleed one bit. A loud visceral squishing sound echoed through the room as the tall man plopped his hand full of intestines on the steel surface beside the corpse. Greg's own stomach lurched. Because studying about dead bodies in a book is one thing, facing some poor soul whose organs were on display as another beast altogether. All that's to say, Greg needed a goddamn minute to get a hold of himself. He closed his eyes, listening to the nauseating sounds of hands raking through organs. While taking his goddamn minute, Greg asked the scrubs guy if he was faculty. The reply? Teaching assistant. Some of the time. Greg opened his eyes to watch this T.A. grab a scalpel and dive into the cadaver's guts. The man's hands moved nimbly, despite their large size. As they went, he muttered to himself, instructions, or rather an explanation of what he was doing as he was doing it. Now, I'm not a science guy. Neither was my Uncle Tommy. So I can't really tell you what Greg learned about this valve going into that artery or anything like that. Just know that this guy was spitting out some real gems of knowledge. So Greg listened to the TA's lesson and watched his hands move across the shining cavities of this dead man's interiors until the wee hours of the morning. It's harder to focus than ever these days. Thankfully, C4 has reinvented the energy drink game with C4 Smart Energy the only energy drink clinically proven to provide enhanced mental focus, containing 200 milligram of natural caffeine, a blend of vitamins and zero sugar. It was formulated to support your well-being and help you feel your best, all while enhancing mental focus. From your brain to your body, C4 Smart Energy does it all and tastes amazing. Look for Smart Energy in the beverage aisle at your local Kroger, 
Albertsons, and Safeway grocery stores. See for Smart Energy. Stay focused. Greg barely remembered getting back to his dorm after that. He knew it was late. He knew he was exhausted. But his brain was churning through all that good stuff he had just learned in that dark room over that dead body. And the next evening in class, he absolutely nailed it. Question after question. Greg's hand shot into the air. No other student stood a chance because Greg had gone from being behind the curve to way, way ahead of it. After class, the professor grabbed his arm and asked him to stay a moment. He noticed a change of course and wondered if Greg had gotten over his first day jitters. Greg explained he had done some after hours with the teacher's assistant last night, who was very helpful. The professor's reply was quick and worried. We don't have a teaching assistant. Confusion hit Greg first, but before he could start to wonder who the hell that guy had been, the professor said, I think you met Grandison Harris. Now Uncle Tommy had already gone over some Grandison bullet points, but according to Greg's professor, there was a lot more to it than that. The teacher explained that Grandison was an enslaved grave robber, yes. He was owned by the faculty here, but after the Civil War and emancipation, Grandison kept working at the college as a free man. Time went on, he became a wealthy, esteemed member of Augusta's black community, until they discovered how he earned his money. The citizens of Augusta were livid, especially Grandison's own community, the folks who had generations of family buried in the very cemetery that he'd pillaged. They grew to fear this man who attacked the dead and lived with the horrific uncertainty of not knowing if their loved ones were still in the ground or if Grandison had just managed to put the grave back exactly how he found it. He was good at that, you see. They saw him as a ghost, floating through the night, disturbing places that were never meant to be disturbed and raising the dead. They thought he worked hand in hand with the devil, and for that, they called him the Resurrection Man. The professor wanted to make sure Greg understood things. Grandison, well, let's not forget he was forced into this role, tasked with an unholy job he had no way to refuse. But the thing that's hard to abide by is that the resurrection man took to his work a little too well. Even as a free man, he carried out this ghoulish task for the rest of his life, and some say, in his death. See, the professor was sure Grandison's spirit still served this college, tending to the cadavers he found, making sure that they stayed put. Greg should avoid him at all costs, no matter what knowledge he offered because Greg hadn't met a teacher's assistant. He'd met the Grim Reaper. A little Met hopeful didn't take all this news so well. For one thing, he had family buried in that cemetery, like his great-grandmother, a grave that his dad still visited. Now he was wondering if that plot was empty, if the resurrection man had desecrated her the way he had done so many others. Greg was also trying to wrap his head around the idea that he spent the night with a ghost. This made the room spin and caused him to stumble out of class, straight to the bathroom a few doors down. After splashing some water on his face, he felt his head clear somewhat. But when he went back to the classroom, it was different from the place he'd just left. He'd somehow, in some way, returned to the room from last night. The dim light, the medical tool-filled table, 
the metal slab with a dead body splayed on top of it. And of course, the resurrection man himself at its side with a welcoming smile. His arms were deep in the cadaver's chest, blood and guts up to his elbows. This time he asked, you want to scrub in? Greg shook his head, but couldn't seem to tear his attention away from the cadaver because he was horrified. He knew very well he was standing in the presence of an entity he shouldn't be messing with that had done terrible things. But his last night with Grandison had given him an edge. It nudged him closer to being a doctor. And here he was, faced with that opportunity again. So just as a part of him wanted to flee this godforsaken place and never return, the other part wondered if Grandison and these nightly operations could be his secret weapon. That's why, ignoring logic and all the horrifying tales his professor had just told him, Craig turned his attention to the cadaver and said, Teach me. Grandison dug his scalpel into the body's interior, cutting neatly through a chunk of lung and pulling the wet organ to the side like a curtain. But as the heart came into view, Greg realized something wasn't right. It took a minute to land on what that was. When he did, the shock of it almost made him fall over, because now that he could see the heart nestle in the corpse's chest, he could also see that it was beating. The cadaver's eyes suddenly shot open, and his frigid, clammy hand snatched Greg's wrist. A scream tore from Greg's throat, and the corpse wheezed. Spit and flecks of rot flew from its mouth, hitting Greg in the face as he wrenched his arm free and ran. His rapid, pattering footsteps echoed through the gaping halls as they carried Greg from the building. But the place was very dark, and he really didn't know his way around. So by just a few minutes in, Greg was totally lost. But he knew that the horror he just endured was at his back, so he kept moving forward. He turned corner after corner until he realized he'd somehow made his way back to that room with the dome. Greg really would have said another prayer, this time for his life, but he was distracted by movement in the dark corners of the space. It was a pair of eyes, glassy and reflective, even in the darkness. Another pair appeared beside the first, then another. He whipped around every which way. He could see the furious stares waiting in the shadows. He had no idea who they were, why they were watching him, but he didn't care to find out either. Greg raced out the door, charging down a corridor he was sure led to an exit, except it didn't. He'd somehow gone deeper into the bowels of the old medical building. And now he was standing at the top of a staircase. Shadow-ridden hallways stretched on all sides, and the stairs led him into some kind of bottomless abyss. He was sure going down there was what we call a bad fucking idea. Maybe it was better to brave a hallway. But that option went out of the window when, from one of those corridors, he heard whistling. The resurrection man. But the echo made it hard to tell which hall he was coming from. So the only safe bet now was down. Greg made it about halfway when he heard the whistling again, this time right above him. There at the top of the stairs was Grannison Harris. The two locked eyes, Greg's probably wild and bloodshot, Grannison's containing something that looked like sympathy. Then the resurrection man said, we put them downstairs. 
Just as Greg was wondering what he meant by that, a glistening, bloated hand reached through the stairwell bars and grabbed Greg's ankle. Greg tried like hell to shake off the hand that locked onto his ankle. But within seconds, a horde of formaldehyde-infused limbs were snatching at his legs from the darkness below. Greg, for his part, twist and turned, wailing himself hoarse, until incredibly, he wriggled free. But a step later, his shoelace caught, and he tumbled down the stairs. He hit the ground immediately, covered his head with his arms, expecting an army of corpses to descend on him. Nothing happened. He braved a look around and saw he'd fallen into a construction zone. A few utility lights lit up piles of dust, tools, the works. Then the moans began, a shrill chorus of tortured, agonizing screams coming from beneath Greg's very feet. He stared in horror at the cement as the floor cracked with a series of deafening bangs. Seconds later, fingers worked their way through the fresh crevices, followed by arms and heads and torsos, all creeping towards Greg in jerky, labored movements, all screaming at the top of their lungs. Greg raced to a pile of construction tools and picked up a hammer, then started swinging it around with everything he had in him. He hit bodies, heard thuds, squelches, but it was no use. If one corpse fell, another took its place. He wondered how long they'd been lying here in wait, hoping for another chance to claw at the living. Greg kept swinging, even though his arms felt like lead and his head was pounding. He kept going, his movements getting slower, until he saw a face that made him stop mid-swing. An older woman, with gray hair and a mole on her chin, a birthmark. The hammer fell from his hands. This was his great-grandmother, the one who had been buried in Cedar Grove. He knew it from old photos he'd seen, yeah. But also sometimes, you just know. She looked at him sadly, then touched an icy, rubbery hand to his cheek. And with that touch, Greg finally got it. That progress and advancement in this place had come at a devastating cost, and that he'd been willing to look the other way for his own sake. That was hard to swallow. The thought left him so confused, so forlorn, that he barely even felt the multitude of hands grab his shoulders, his legs, his neck, and pin him to the ground. He lay there, back scraping against the concrete as the hands tore at his skin, pushed against his organs and whispered pleas into his ear. The pain was overwhelming, but he couldn't move, not even if he wanted to. When morning came, the tormented cadavers of the old medical building finally sank back into the cement with a whimper. But even then, Greg didn't budge until the construction crews arrived for the day and found him, bruised and torn up and in shock. First thing he told them, look in the floor and free the poor souls buried there. Uncle Tommy shook his head as he recalled seeing Greg ashen and confused pointing like mad at the cement around him. Once Tommy and his team started digging, they finally understood what this kid was rambling on about. Almost 4,000 corpses had been entombed in the medical building's basement, all put there by the resurrection man and the faculty of the college. This wasn't the kind of place where you dance, Uncle Tommy said. No way. Those bodies had gone back to Cedar Grove, 
and hopefully given peace. But what happened here? The memory of their pain. This wasn't the kind of place where you dance. I felt a little numb from this tale, so instead of heading back to the dance floor, I walked out the door and on over to Cedar Grove. There was a big old monument there, marking the cadaver's burial site. A simple phrase was etched in its side, known to God. I paid my respects. It wasn't enough, but it was something. Run, Fool! is a production of Ballin Studios, Campside Media, and At Will Media. It is hosted and executive produced by me, Rodney Barnes. This episode was written by Kate Murdoch and produced by Abakar Adan. Edited by Matt Scher. It was sound designed and mixed by Kevin Seaman. Our team also includes Rosie Guerin, Will Malnati, and Matt Hickey. Creature vocalization by Terry Casburn and artwork by Jessica Clogston Kiner. Production support by Jeremy Bond and Cole Locasio. Special thanks to Mark McAdam and Seth Richardson and our operations team. Doug Slawin, Ashley Warren, Sabina Mara, and Destiny Dingle. Executive producers at Ballin Studios are Mr. Ballin, Nick Witters, and Zach Levitt. Executive producers at Atwill Media are Will Malnati and Rosie Garrett. Executive producers at Campside Media are Matt Scher, Josh Dean, Vanessa Gregoriadis, and Adam Hoff. Thanks for listening, and see you next week.